0: You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Not so bad, yourself? Good. Yeah, I see. Whenever we start the
1: podcast, just for people who are listening on audio, which I guess is everybody, we have video going. What <laughs> what else would you be listening to? If it's not audio. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Screens. <laughs> That's true. And we, uh, but we can see each other. Yeah. And I always crack a smile, and then you, you crack a smile because you know I'm going to get into something, and you just don't know what it's going to be. But pretty straightforward. This is the Jeffrey reacts
0: section where I have no idea what Jim is going to say. So for yeah, uh, for those listening, I you know I enter the show, and then I say hi Jim, and then Jim comes at me with something that I have. No preparation whatsoever. So this is all thinking on my feet.
1: Yeah. Well, this is this one's easy because I'm gonna base it on real life experience of uh I want to talk about the Gartner IM summit that we're scheduled to go to uh what is that, the 22nd through the 24th. Fourth. So Monday, Monday through, through Wednesday. Wednesday. Yep. And so we we've got a recording spot now. We're going to set up some uh, podcast recordings. So I'm starting to invite people, and I'm letting people know that they need to schedule time to get from wherever they are to the time of their recording because Caesars might be the biggest uh, maze on the planet. I mean, getting yeah, from point right. A to point B is, is pretty difficult at times. Usually you figure it out
0: by Wednesday, uh, and it's just time in time to leave. To leave. Yeah, it's a big spot. I mean, I think if if Gartner is where it usually is, and I don't know the name of the spot, but it's kind of like it's got a view overlooking like the, the pools or whatever it may be. Um, the rooms could be half an hour away. And you and I and courtesy of our our friends at RSM have a suite that we have booked that will be sort of like our recording home base. I have put in a request to make it as convenient as possible. I know there's a bank of elevators. I got to go kind of go up and down from where the Gartner area is, but I have no idea if that request will be on it or if it's even available. So we'll see. But yes, if you uh, are planning on being on the show or even just want to watch a show get recorded and, you know, reach out to Jim and I on LinkedIn and just kind of account for time. I know, I know we're kind of booking things out right now and, working through the schedule, but it'd be kind of cool. It'll be the first time Jim and I are actually at a conference together since uh, as I'll never let him live it down. He ditched me for authenticate last year uh, with the FIDO conference, but uh, be good an opportunity to, to fist bump, you know, shake hands, whatever the greeting du jour is for the day. And then if you want to watch or be part of a show, you know, let us know. we we'll be happy to try and figure out how we can accommodate that.
1: Jeff, I have a, a pro tip for getting an upgraded room or whatever your request is pictures of the Benjamin dollars on
0: palming it to the, uh, no checking $20 in.
1: bill is, you know, it's Thomas Jefferson anymore. is not going to, or no, that's what Andrew Jackson, not going to get you quite as far as Benjamin Franklin will.
0: And it gets an extra towel.
1: If you want to, if you want a, a feather free room, I think you're in, in luck with the $20 bill. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have an actual tip or are you going with the, uh, Palm the cash uh, tip. It's, it's money, yeah. Money, I stole your money talks okay. and the other stuff better be doing the walking.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, everyone will be doing the walking. That's what Vegas is, uh, is all about. Um, yeah. Anything else or should we uh, get into our topic? Let's get into it, man. We've got a lot of a lot of ground to cover here. Yeah, no kidding. We're going to talk about identity and access management, uh, really focusing on the state and local government sector. And to help with that conversation, we've got our new friend, Robert Snodgrass. He's a director in the security practice here with us at RSM. Welcome to the show, Robert. Yep,
2: happy to be here. Uh, Long time listener, first time caller, so thanks for having me on.
0: If I was brave, I'd use my soundboard to do some kind of wacky sound effect, but uh, just imagine (laughs) it in your head if you're listening to it right now. Um, It is very cool. It's been great to kind of get to know you for the last couple of months since we've kind of both been onboarded and working through a lot of projects you've got a ton of experience in this space. Um, One of the things that we like to do when we have a new guest on the show though, is kind of learn about their origin story and really kind of find out, you know, how did you get into either identity or sort of InfoSec? Is it something that you chose uh, or did it choose you? If you can kind of just walk us through how you got to where you are right now.
2: Sure, so I've spent my entire career in cybersecurity consulting and my path to identity, probably like a lot of people was a bit of a zigzag. Uh, I actually initially started my career working in a big four focused on actually ERP implementations. And as part of that gained a bit of notoriety, I call it some good and some bad as it related to dealing with distressed projects and helping to bring those projects back on track. So my, my focus is really around cybersecurity solution delivery. And as part of that path, it led me into both state government as well as specifically the identity sector and and through that i've had a great opportunity to you know take my experience which initially started in financial services and in particularly fortune 100 banking and i've had an opportunity to work with now seven different state governments on various cyber solutions including digital identity over the last 10 years
0: seven different governments that's pretty good in 10 years that's a that's a that's an excellent track record i guess um you know I will, I'm going to shamelessly plug your organizational skills because you are one of the most organized people I think that I've ever met. Uh, (laughs) Some people
2: call that OCD.
0: Almost frighteningly so. (laughs) I think that's, uh,
1: that's quite a compliment coming from you, Jeff, because I was going to say you're one of the most organized people that
0: I've ever met. That's now we're getting into the tiering structure, which means Jim, you're not organized at all. I'm not organized at all. (laughs) No, but I, and, and. Yeah,
1: but I'm doing all the organization for our podcast for Gartner. So enjoy the outcome. <laughs> Hopefully, we have the the nine or ten sessions recorded that we're hoping for. But now I think we'll be we'll be fine. So Robert, um, today we wanted to discuss state and local government approaches to digital identity or identity and access management and how they differ from private sector. And I guess you know if there's any differences between state and local government. I mean, do they take a different approach than one another? Um, and also, we we found a recent article that talked about how states have been investing heavily over the past decade into um, kind of getting their workforce IAM house in order. And now they're kind of shifting their focus for investment into the citizen IAM space. So just wondering if you could maybe talk about that and... Um, you know, explain a little bit about that trend that's happening. Is that something that's happening across the board or is it something that's just in pockets?
2: I think to really understand the trend of identity as it relates to state government, we really need to understand the origin of technology as it relates to state government, because it's really very different than what you might see in a traditional private organization. So 20 years ago, Agencies essentially operated independently within the state government landscape. Uh, So they had their own directors, they had their own budgets, they had their own IT staff, and for the most part, operated independently as it related to delivery of those solutions. So then in the early 2000s, the legislative body got tired of essentially paying for 100 different IT shops and began to form departments of IT Uh, within states and that's been going on now for the last probably decade or so as these these kind of centralized IT departments were generated that initially started with things like data centers obviously there's huge capital investment makes a ton of sense for agencies to consolidate that investment into a single location but with identity it created a really unique challenge because you have agencies that are typically you know potentially very large think departments of transportation departments of health that have 10, 15,000 employees that have their own domain structure. Um, and then how do you collapse that together into unified naming conventions? How do you take this, you know, forest of, of various active director domains and, and unify them? And, and that's really been the focus over the last, you know, 10, 12 years is, is building that integrated view of what is your workforce identity as it relates to an individual state. I'd say for the most part, states have really gotten over that hurdle within their workforce, and that's really why they're starting to look a little bit uh, down the road and focusing on that, that citizen persona, as, as you started to touch on. The citizen persona is, is a bit of a unique concept, and, and it also isn't a unique concept. So the closest parallel I would put to this is if you really think about a consumer persona. Uh, Where the start of this was very similar, where it was really meant to be a way, as you dealt with education, with transportation, uh, and so forth, how can we build a unified mechanism for individuals to access those services? Basically, how do we reduce the barriers of entry for individuals to come in to a digitized government? Beyond that, though, I think there's some really unique things that states are starting to think about as it relates to the citizen persona and why I think state may start to see really interesting impacts in the private space. So one is the joining of both digital and physical identities. So if you think about your physical identity as it relates to state government driver's license, right? A a really simple example of how you would go to various state agencies and prove who you are. There's a lot of interesting use cases that are being considered now about, well, how do I join that with a digital identity? Um, And some examples that I saw of recently were things like, if you have your COVID-19 vaccination card, can you put a QR code on that as a way to sort of validate that record and have the most up-to-date information? Or on the flip side, how do I take my physical driver's license and digitize that and make that available to me within my phone in some way, shape or form?
1: Real interesting that you went into the uh, the driver's license. I'd like to follow up on that, but just had a thought as you were talking about kind of the transition that state governments have made from, you know, having decentralized IT to centralized IT and kind of the, you know, all the challenges to doing that. I just kind of think there's a lot of big companies that have kind of found themselves going through that same journey, right? If they were, um, you know, didn't have a push to centralize it departments within that company, uh, mm-hmm. early on well, they built a bunch of infrastructure, maybe they have some shared, uh, infrastructure, like the, um, their network layer and, um, but you know, normally I, I've seen a lot of companies where, you know, active directories were separate at one point and they've had to kind of go through the process of merging it. And really that also kind of sets the the stage for other identity and access management challenges. So, I mean, I don't think that's completely unique to states. It sounds to me like that's where almost every state has kind of found themselves but I, I, we see this a lot in like university contexts. I see it a lot in big multinational companies, especially if they've grown by acquisition, is that kind of your mm-hmm. experience as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I worked for a, a fortune 10 bank for four years at, at the start of my career. And a big element that we had to work through was that they grew very rapidly through acquisition. They had organizations almost of equivalent size that they were trying to bring under a single identity umbrella. And I think the challenges that we face there are almost identical to the challenges that we faced within the state government. I think the difference is you're facing them 10, 12, 15 years later. So in some ways you have the advantage in that you can take those proven use cases from the private sector and really apply them into the public one.
0: I think that lag is helpful, right? Sometimes Sometimes it might be a little bit of a hindrance. And you know, they go, well, why isn't, this, why isn't this service easy to use? Like, what do you mean I have to like fill out a piece of paper, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like in 2022, I were doing that sort of thing. I want to touch back on one thing because I want to get into privacy for a second. But before I get to that, you mentioned earlier on that a lot of legislatures have gotten together to essentially kind of form these centralized departments of IT or services or whatever it might look like. Is that something that you've seen across the board, essentially, for like all 50 states? Or is that you know half the states you know like what's the what's been the adoption of sort of that sort of mindset of a central shared infrastructure group of some sort at this stage and i can't speak for all 50
2: states because i've interacted with all 50 states but at this stage you know beyond serving directly with seven states i've probably interacted with another 20 to 25 every single one of them has some level of centralized it the way in which they're funded and the level of service that they provide to both state and or local governments will vary dramatically between states, but all of them will have a central IT department. And in every single one of those circumstances, that is the department that is driving the identity discussion.
0: It seems to me like it's a great opportunity to have more interoperability between the different states for those types of scenarios like vaccine or driver's licenses or you know other forms of being able to check things, which... You know, if I put my tin foil hat on, now I'm starting to talk about privacy and there's this natural reaction of what is the government doing <laughs> with my data? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen some some recent uh, things, that, at least at the federal level with things like the IRS and ID.me. Um, I guess from a, from a privacy standpoint, you know, what is the sort of data that state or local governments want? What are the constraints that go around how they might utilize it? Or, you know, those types of scenarios. Like what are some of the things that, that those operations are thinking about to try and protect the citizenry you know, and their data.
2: So you mentioned ID.me, but I think probably the better parallel from a state identi- identity to federal identity perspective is, is login.gov. So login.gov, if you've registered for things like TSA pre-check or global entry is the mechanism in which you log in. And so what login.gov did and what states are doing is really trying to build a shared set of piping in order to facilitate authentication. That's primarily what they're driving towards. The privacy question is a good one, uh, because in some ways, not to the same extent that the federal government does, but state government has more information about the individual than just about any other industry vertical that's out there. And there is no unifying law around collection and usage of that information. Now, I would say in the last five years, five to 10 years, there's been a definite trend of states hiring uh, permanent data privacy officers and or data governance officers to better understand the data they have and how it's being utilized. But laws that people often associate with state privacy, like the California Consumer Protection Act, are focused on consumers, not government services. So there isn't, you know, that one place to look at to really understand those questions, and in a lot of cases, you're seeing very agency-specific laws and regulations driving that. So Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, for example, has a view on this. Um, the Social Security Administration has a view on this. The Driver's License Privacy Protection Act has a view on this, and so it's a really Hard question to answer sometimes when you're trying to go through this view of how do I balance building out a very robust process to identify and proof an individual but not create a honeypot of data that both exposes the con- the individual constituent as well as you know violates their understanding of how that data was going to be utilized
0: yeah, I think that's that's the main concern, right is we're in the age of breaches. So of course, the more data you consolidate in one spot, the more concern there is that all that stuff gets out there. And now we start thinking about oh, things like biometric, you know, you can change your password, you can't change your fingerprint, at least not, mm-hmm. not legally <laughs> or, or maybe even willingly. So things like that become a lot more um, sensitive from a sharing perspective and where is it being stored? Um, I think of, you know, you mentioned login.gov and, you know, I, I have pre check and I have a passport and I use that to log in those types of services. A service like that essentially already exists why would another agency even think about using something else from an authentication standpoint i mean there probably are certain scenarios like identity proofing you know to prevent financial fraud maybe that's why irs didn't look at it or maybe it didn't meet their needs but it seems to me like if we there's still this as an as a outsider looking in like i see what seem to be suitable services but then it seems like because of all the different use cases or requirements or laws or regulations or whatever they may be, we still haven't come up with a scalable or modular enough way where it's kind of like the, the no-brainer de facto standard for mm-hmm. government services. Yes, I log in with my login.gov in the U.S. Maybe it's something else in a different country. I think uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the country in the Europe, but they're like totally is it Mauritania or something like that where they're like 100% digital. And they've kind of figured it out, and it seems they've been that way for a while. Like, why haven't we caught up <laughs> to that from a central? Yeah, I think standpoint?
2: I think Estonia actually Estonia is one of the ones I was I, yeah, I yeah, was yeah. thinking of where they have a a PKI enabled infrastructure for their for their digital identity. It, it it really interesting. So I think you know obviously you know any individual state probably has more complexity to it than than Estonia does. But you know there's a number of kind of deployment related challenges that as you think about what's the model we even want to apply here and depending who you ask, they take a very different approach. So there's really really three views to this at the end of the day. there's a centralized model, there's a federated model, and then there's just a completely decentralized model. So the centralized model is basically what you just talked about with Estonia and this is the direction that you know a number of states have gone like with Ohio and, and the innovate Ohio solution where the Department of IT essentially builds a singular infrastructure, for identity so it has the identity store it manages the authentication and you essentially plug into that it is it is the idp for state services then you have a more federated system where you can have multiple identity providers uh, that you're utilizing Uh, i think i read an article where it's it's canada actually federates with certain banking systems in order to drive identity And then you can have a totally decentralized but based on standard integration pattern view which is really interesting i think from a data privacy perspective because no one controls the full view and that certainly in and of itself drives drives kind of a bit more of a container around the data they have but the complexity of what that really means and the management of it also generates a lot of question marks in my mind so Until we can really come to a conclusion on that, I think that each state is really trying to make that determination on their own.
0: Wasn't blockchain supposed to solve that for us? I mean, we've been hearing blockchain (laughs) and block identity things were gonna be like the decentralized way to, to everybody manages their own data and it's gonna be a perfect world. And I feel like here we are, I think I first heard about this probably at Gartner, like four or five years ago, and I still haven't, it it hasn't gotten anywhere from an identity Mm -hmm. perspective. Even though on the face value, it's like, oh, that seems like a pretty applicable use case—civic, healthcare, education—I can see it making a lot of sense there. But we're—I don't know anybody who's like really doing it, really in the real world at any scale that matters. I am
2: not aware of anyone that's looking at that. It, you know, the idea of a transparent citizen-owned identity that is portable, like you would see as part of your Apple wallet, uh, is exciting and I think very interesting position that states and or the federal government could play to really drive forward not just state and local government, but the market of identity as a whole. But there really hasn't been that singular leadership, whether that's Department of Homeland Security or you know, directly within CISA. That, that has not really been a direct strategy for them at this point in time. There are some really interesting investments that are coming out of the federal space. Um, the Infrastructure Act that was you know signed under the Biden administration last year has about, I think about $1 billion associated to it in grant money related to state and local government partnerships related to cybersecurity. No guidance specifically on how they anticipate awarding that and what it's going to be used for. But I mean, it, it creates interesting questions that can you unify some of that money in a way that drives forward, not just for a singular state, but for a region or even the country.
1: You know, I feel like when we have this privacy discussion, you, you can't have the discussion holistically without talking about like Eric Zodan and WikiLeaks and kind of what impact that had I'm wondering when it comes because I, I think most of the privacy regulations that we talk about in our industry, things like CCPA, you know, they don't really apply to government agencies. So I guess the formal question would be what dri- what is driving or what framework do policy, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, privacy practitioners use from a government side to determine, hey, what data should we collect and and things like that. I'm kind of wondering if the whole WikiLeaks piece kind of like looms over. Is that kind of influencing that? In other words, hey, if we collect it um, at some point, it may become publicly known that we collected it, or is that just mm-hmm. something? I mean, you know, I know state and state governments probably aren't collecting the kind of data that, say, the NSA is collecting. But I'm wondering, like, (laughs) we hope, right? But what's (laughs) kind of driving privacy practitioners within these government agencies to determine what data to collect?
2: So I can't speak to data privacy as a whole, but in the context of identity, and I'll talk about it in, in two ways, identity proofing and identity affirmation, it is something we talk about every single day and the reason we talk about it every single day is we want to avoid those data marts honey pots wiki leaks whatever view you want to apply to it um, around the collection of data that potentially creates a, an attack surface that we're just not interested in taking the risk associated with so when we talk about identity proofing so when i initially come in to a digital service and identifying. You, know, you are who you say that you are. You know We have a lot of mechanisms available to us within the state government to facilitate that, but we want to right-size the risk of both collecting that information as well as validating it with the service that you're attempting to access. So for example, if you're coming in to pay your taxes, not get a refund, but to pay um, for yourself or for your business, to a degree, if you're willing to cut that check, probably willing to accept that and we aren't going to go through additional proofing if you are for example getting grant money or in the case of the federal government getting a tax refund with the issues that happened there the bar would be significantly higher and so part of it is limiting again when we are actually attempting to even access that information uh, such that it is risk justified the second element then is well how are we accessing the information so, driver's license is a really popular mechanism in state government. Why? Because we have it, and it's it's relatively easy for us to reach out and and grab it. But as I mentioned earlier, you know there is a law, the Driver's License Privacy Protection Act, that we do have to evaluate these calls against. And so, the approach that we've generally taken is API. And the API isn't send me all the information about Jim McDonald. The API is Jim McDonald said these things about himself. Can you confirm yes or no? And so that limits the information that we're receiving and have to be responsible for. The other element in getting to the biometric piece is the sort of the view and I'm sure that other spaces have this as well, but the view we apply in the public sector is assume all knowledge-based proofing is compromised. So we would take any information you provide plus a picture of your driver's license, plus a picture of you and do a comparison, but we would never store that. We blow it all away. It's real time. It never gets collected. So the footprint is meant to be very small and very transactional as best as possible. And then at that point, all we do is store that you have in fact been proofed and to what level you've been proofed. The other element we look at is the identity affirmation piece. So fine, you're in the system. Great. But now you're coming in and you're attempting to perform. Uh, a certain transaction that is of a higher level. So you're trying to pull information from retirement benefits or a, cut a check out of your your pension or, or 401k. In that case, we would also look at more of like an adaptive or risk-based view of that transaction and say, all right, so you typically log in with one of these two devices and that device is geographically located here and this is the type of login pattern that you follow in terms of the language of your browser. And we would flag that for atypical behavior. And then that would require, again, sort of additional confirmation before that transaction would take place.
1: Yeah, the, the latter scenario that you were discussing, I, I think the buzz term is uh, verified credentials I kind of went through that process with the id.me process to get to irs services uh just recently right as you're going through the process of attaining a mortgage you have to kind of go and get irs transcripts and things like that so recently went through that process and to your point it made a big uh point of saying look if you do this automated process we blow away the data you're <laughs> your other option is wait and do a video chat with a human being but the wait time is an hour
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but hey you do have the option um anyway i wanted to, to switch topics a little bit uh you know we had during our preparation for this session you mentioned an organization called uh i think Ignacio. nacio it was the Na- way nacio. It's pronounced. nacio and nacio. um mm-hmm. yeah so that's a public sector CIO organization, and what are you? What are they talking about in uh, relative to digital identity?
2: So, NASIO, the National Association of State CIOs, in my mind, is the organization to really understand what are the IT priorities across the state sector. So, typically, this is a group that meets twice a year these are decision makers within the individual states. Typically, they are leading the shared departments of IT for that state. And they come together to really talk about where are you investing? Where do you plan to invest? What are you seeing as a successful way in which you've invested? So that could be vendors, that could be just particular topics and things of that nature. So every year they release uh, a NASIO top 10 priorities. It typically comes out in the late fall, early winter of the preceding year that says, okay, these are the 10 priorities that we anticipate we will take into, in this case, 2022. And then these are the supporting technology projects that we believe are going to enable those. So if I look at 2022's NASIO top 10 priorities, number one is cybersecurity. Number two is digital services. I think number six is identity. The idea is that with not just COVID, but I think with the understanding that the digitization of government services drives faster revenue return, better engagement with services, and frankly, just better experience from the user perspective, which ultimately leads them to come back again. There's been a significant investment in that kind of IT modernization to enable that. Obviously, then cybersecurity exposure and the need for a unified citizen identity in this case are going to be critical to that. Underpinning that, if you look at the technology solutions that they're really most focused on, particularly from the citizen perspective, they're pretty early in the life cycle. So they're just focused on how do I prove out the citizens that are logging in are in fact who they say they are. Such that I can move beyond those general services where I'm really not having to proof with any real, any real deep evaluation. To so now exposing more sensitive services like retirement benefits and health information, you know, through these digital portals. That these are things like Access Indiana has started to go down this path. Innovate Ohio, I know, has started to go down this path. But many states are, are really just starting to, frankly, dip a toe in to how digital services supported by a digital citizen identity can really start to be rolled out to their constituencies. So we focused a
1: lot, you know, talking about the United States, right? And I, I mean, a lot of our listeners are, be, uh, at least a third of our listeners are based outside of the United States. How much collaboration it would, is going on, you know, beyond the borders of the United States? Because a lot of the, what you're talking about seems like these are best practices, uh, not only for the United States, right, but for governments all over the world.
2: The short answer from a state and local government perspective is none <laughs> that I'm aware of. Uh, even within state and local government, outside of groups like NASIO, the information sharing tends to be a bit more regional in partnerships. So if you think about Washington and Oregon or Maryland and Virginia or the Carolinas. like These are groups that share close geographic territory. They have a, a lot of overlap in businesses and citizens and things of that nature. So they tend to work pretty closely together. In terms of international partnerships, like I said, none. I would say that if you look at it from the federal level and thinking about things like the National Institute of Standards and Technology, you know, those are organizations that are often setting standards that state governments are are utilizing um there are also obviously looking at things like standard authentication patterns oadc and saml which have an international flavor to them as well but i guess the short answer i would say is indirectly when you think about industry standards certainly state and local uses them like anyone else would but as far as you know, does uh, Ohio directly talk with members of the EU to define what they're doing from a identity strategy perspective? Absolutely not.
0: Well, it wouldn't be a conversation about state and local government without talking politics. Right. And before I get to that, <laughs> I'm curious for, for NASIO, you know, there certainly politics play a real, large role in a lot of different things. But as far as participation at that sort of like CIO level... Do you see any, is it, you know, red versus blue in some of those things do everyone pretty much just get along and they're kind of like operating outside of the political spectrum? What's the sort of like, I guess, feel of the room, so to speak?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I would personally say that those sessions are not political, but state CIOs are appointed by the governor's office. So there are potentials where there will be CIOs who lean more political one way or the other uh, based on you know their affiliation with a particular governor's office i would say typically if you look across the board the vast majority of those individuals would say that they are it first and it and cyber is a bipartisan issue that really doesn't play on either side of the aisle so you know there're always concerns you know particularly in battleground states where if a party affiliation changes over, that these individuals may also change over. But for the most part, these are very specialized roles, people with a lot of experience you know in that space, working with the state agencies. And so because of that, they tend to be seen as you know longer term positions.
0: Do you find any trends where, you know, I'm thinking like you know, blue states tend to be more digital first, or red states might be more something else first, or is it pretty universal that everyone kind of gets it that it's just more about getting you know secure access to the state's resources and making sure the services are usable? Do you see any like trends as far as you know, uh, Democrat versus Republican or Independents?
2: You can I, also I pass the, too the, if you
0: want to. I, I think the the, the, tr-
2: the trends would be more digital service oriented than i would say cyber oriented which is to say that a blue state would typically provide more government services than a red state a blue state would typically have a larger budget in comparison to red states of a similar size and so because of that certain blue states have perhaps identified the need for digital identity for their citizens earlier just because more things are being offered from a digital perspective. That being said, I worked on Innovate Ohio, uh, which is the citizen portal for Ohio for, for three years. That was under Governor Mike DeWine and Lieutenant Governor Husted. That's that's a red state. So I don't think it's necessarily a red or blue issue. I think anymore people see cyber as as a bipartisan issue that really deals with you know, national security
0: you talk about a little bit about kind of like the funding cycles and changing over of you know administrations and how that might impact uh, some of the appointments at the it level and maybe downstream projects or strategies. I guess what well, can you tell us about that sort of political cycle how does that how does that impact things like funding and strategies and things like that because I'd imagine every two to four years there's probably <laughs> some major shakeup and that's to me, as I think about it, like from a, you know, how are we going to actually get to get things done? That seems like a, a pretty big concern that I would have on a roadmap somewhere as a risk.
2: It is and it isn't. It is in that really probably more so the four-year governor cycle than, than the two-year legislative cycle is more impactful. And, and I'd say it's impactful from a people and from a funding perspective. The people piece we touched on, which is that many of the agency directors and secretaries are directly appointed by the governor. So in the event that that governor is, is not reelected or term limited, or even more so if the party changes over, it is possible that that individual will no longer be there when the administration transitions. It's not guaranteed, but it is probably more likely than not that that is the case. And so from an execution standpoint, that can potentially slow things down, where as people transition and want to understand what the projects are and the investments that they're making is that projects may not go live in those windows or may drag on six, seven months after anticipated windows to bring new leadership up to speed. Funding is perhaps less impactful, and there's really two ways in which these centralized IT departments are funded. One is direct appropriations, and the second is chargebacks. Direct appropriations would typically be driven by, let's say, um, Maryland, as an example, is doing it, has an IT modernization, cyber modernization fund uh, where they basically um, pushed bonds in order to put multiple millions of dollars together to drive various IT projects. That funding, once approved, is earmarked. Uh, With the basically, significant effort is not going to change. Um, chargebacks are chargebacks from individual agencies. So we're essentially where you're operating almost as an out, outsourced IT service provider for those agencies, and then they pay into central IT for that time. Um, those those can be much more impactful because those are really kind of annual based decisions. And if those leaders change over, they may not be inclined to spend their money in that way.
0: You talk about this thing called the three P's when we were talking before the show. What does that mean?
2: <laughs> so that's that's a that's a Robertism uh, that I came up with to really describe the funding cycle and delivery cycle um, for these projects with the state. And so the three P's are piping, pilot, and pattern. The first two are typically activities that we would be driving out of the centralized IT group. These would be projects with direct appropriations with definitive timelines and really being driven by various leaders within those departments of IT. So the idea is, what, whether it's access management or IGA or PAM, that we would stand up the infrastructure, the base configuration, the core testing of use cases that would be used for the enterprise. So lights on, documentation done, core functionality available we would then coordinate with agencies for the launch of an individual pilot to essentially validate our understanding. So it's like uh, everything sounds great in academia, and then once you apply it in the real world, you, you obviously have a number of lessons learned that come through that process. Uh, that at the end of it, we would incorporate those lessons learned, and that essentially finalizes what we'd call a pattern. And so the pattern then is agencies choose to onboard from that point going forward, the agencies would pay for that the agencies would be responsible for bringing individuals to the to the table and they would utilize generally documentation generated during that 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 piping and pilot phase to drive the majority of that implementation activity so it's a way to take kind of a a centralized solution and a centralized delivery model and then start to decentralize it across the enterprise and the state or local perspective
1: Robert I'm wondering our are- Are state and local governments, like most corporate organizations that I've worked with, coming up with kind of a a cloud-first strategy? So are they trying to move to cloud services? And then that got me thinking about, do they have any FedRAMP requirements that they're either governed by or that they are choosing if available?
2: So there's been a lot of conversation over the course of the last two years for a state RAMP. Set of requirements, very similar in nature to what you'd see from a FedRAMP perspective. That is still very much taking shape. Going back to NASIO, if you look at their top 10 priorities and the technology that supports it, number one is cloud services. So, cloud is, I would say, from an enterprise strategy perspective, relatively immature across the state landscape. They're still uh, evaluating how to strategically apply this for benefits across the state? What type of data are we gonna put in there? How does this apply for infrastructure versus software? What kind of changes are we gonna to make to our overall cybersecurity services and audit mechanisms that we use? A lot of that, frankly, hasn't been defined. This is a space, and, and, and I, I pick on vendors sometimes because I think vendors drive a lot of the conversation, but I think vendors that are pushing cloud services right now Will help to maybe drive some maturity around that discussion at the state
0: level. To the cloud, <laughs> to the cloud. Here to we go. <laughs> um, I want to start to wrap up the conversation because you've been, you know, generous with your time. This sparks, uh, though, something I want to bring up. That um, listener out there, Andrew, and uh, also been on the show, Andrew the phone, sent me a LinkedIn message, and I, I think this is a great opportunity to bring up this question. Is and it's around the balance of Security versus a user experience because I feel like this is exactly <laughs> the the conversation that's probably taking place as part of that. And I think of ex- and he gave me an example of you know moving away from SMS in favor of more secure um, MFA methods. And I'll paraphrase things like app or you know, app based push authentication, or maybe even you know if you're if you're really cool, going down like a passwordless route or something like that. What are your thoughts on, you know, how does an organization, and let's keep it the state and local kind of flair for this one, you know, help kind of drive that stuff, stuff, that that sort of maturity or that maturation away from what we consider legacy MFA or other types mm-hmm. of legacy technologies like on prem, maybe moving to a cloud based approach. How does that balancing act take place? Maybe this is maybe this is a conversation that takes place in ASIO, and I'm sure in conference rooms all across different governments. But what are your thoughts on that?
2: A question that has been brought up more times than I can count in my career. And a big element of why I've talked a lot about not just identity, but digital services is we found that that joining to be extremely successful. Every time you layer on security, no matter how great the UX is, always creates friction with the user base. So by looking for opportunities where we weren't just rolling out security, but but tagging that to perhaps web application modernization and releasing that in sort of one joint package created a bit of, of a balance, right? So I'm getting better services and experience. And while there's a security layer that's maybe new to me, I'm okay with accepting that because I'm getting a better overall experience. So that's sort of big picture. Drilling down into something like MFA, what we often would talk about is okay fine sms isn't as secure as an application push but what are they trying to access right how how critical is it that we push that experience and if we didn't have a really good risk story around that then we would typically shy away from that change so i think as with most things from a cyber perspective understanding the risk context that's there is important to drive those decisions, not just looking at it from a cyber lens.
0: I think the other thing I think about too, is that it doesn't have to be a one size fits all there's probably multiple right answers. It just depends on the use case, context, risk, whatever it is you're trying to address Jim in 30 seconds, tell me how you balance security with uh, the user experience. <laughs> yeah, you no, know, Robert
1: touched on it. It's easy. all about, it's all about level of insurance. If you need a high level of assurance, then you have to have appropriate controls that achieve that level of assurance. If you need a high level of assurance, as well as you need to reach a broad audience, that's the the toughest scenario. But I mean, can you name one banking service where you're able to log in with your Facebook ID or your Google ID? It just doesn't <laughs> happen, right? Um, now, I was doing something the other day where it was... Again, going through the process of getting a mortgage, you're constantly docu-signing things. This was not docu-sign, but it was some other application to sign a document. They said, do you want to sign up for multi-factor authentication? Which has become ubiquitous enough now that like, I, and probably a lot of people, say, yes, I do want that level of protection. But then when I got to it, they would not offer SMS or email as an option. You had to download an authenticator app. And at that point, I said, well, "That sounds very inconvenient, right? I have Google Authenticator, but do I want to go through this whole process to link through first docu signing for well, that's become like the Kleenex term, right? To sign a document electronically. Ultimately, I I wound up saying after I started seeing what the documents were, I was like, okay, I will register my Google Authenticator, but I bet you most people would say, forget about it."
0: It's too
1: high. It's just, it felt like too too high of a bar before I knew what I was going to get. After I saw it was in there, I was willing to go over that bar, but it was still probably a bar, especially if you give people the option to opt out. It may have become too high of in a bar. But that level of assurance, if you're talking about your employees or you're talking about your privilege access, um, it's a high level of assurance. And now you can set up those additional hurdles where. You need to use a soft mm-hmm. token
0: or maybe even a hard token. I got a, uh, a Chromecast with Google TV yesterday to add to my collection. And I went through the process last night of setting up all my video services on it. Netflix, Hulu, HBO, Apple, blah, blah, blah. Right? All the things that we said would be cheaper, uh, independently from a cable subscription. I'm now paying more, but that's a separate conversation. And I must've experienced five or six different ways to authenticate and connect those services to my media device. And it ranged from having to use a remote control, you know, that doesn't have letters and keyboards on it and navigating and typing in an email address and, you know, a very long and complicated password for each of these services to going to the web and doing like an OAuth flow where it's, you know, simpler and easier to Apple which I logged in and then it used actually my on-device credentials and facial recognition. And I never had to type anything, which was awesome. I think that's that that balance of the usability and security kind of comes back to this. It's like, okay, we're talking about, you know, media streaming. What are we really concerned about? And how do we make that, you know, easier for people to actually consume the services? I get Netflix is down. They're looking for ways to, <laughs> you know, to increase subscribers or, you know, drive revenue, but at the end of the day, you know, let's make it easy for folks. Um, all right, let's start to wrap things up. Robert, we like to end on a lighter note and I know that you are a connoisseur of various um beverages. You've got a very impressive kind of home bar setup. So I'm gonna go with an alcohol theme here for our lighter note. What is your favorite alcohol spirit and then what is your least favorite?
2: Yeah, I think we were saying that there's a there's a definite spin-off podcast here, uh, <laughs> strong opinions on, on strong spirits. Cause I, yep. I have very strong opinions on this. So from a, from a favorite perspective, my view kind of changes over the course of the year. I would say, you know, given that it's a beautiful weather here in Charlotte, North Carolina, I would say tequila right now is, is in my number one spot. I think, uh, you know, a lot of times people have their, their Cuervo scar from at some point in their life, but a, a huge fan of you know, really great tequilas out there, and I think it's been really fun over the last couple years that tequila's kind of caught on in the market. On the other end of the spectrum, I know this is a really unpopular opinion: vodka, only because I just don't feel like vodka brings anything to the party. Uh, I like, I like to make cocktails. Um, vodka to me is just
0: a blank slate. Yeah, it's uh, I. My vodka story is for a different reason. That's because I had way too many one night, very long time ago, and I have not gone back to the well, and I'm not going <laughs> to do that anymore.
2: yeah. And, and I promise that cyber projects don't don't drive me to drink.
0: Uh, <laughs> that's that's definitely not the case at all. Yeah, there's plenty of other things that do that. yeah, it, um, exactly. <laughs> Jim, what about you? What's your favorite and least favorite spirit? Well, I feel like I need
1: to address the the vodka piece because, I think it being a blank slate, and the more blank the slate is, in other words, the more time, the more refinement it has, the fewer impurities exist. And when you drink it, you don't have the problems the next day of feeling hungover. So I appreciate that about a good vodka. I think probably the um, the alcohol that I enjoy the most, but I have to make sure I don't drink too much of, is bourbon. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to pick one that maybe nobody thought of for least favorite, which is an Aperitivo called Uzo. If you've had Uzo You stole before. my thunder.
0: No, did that I? That was my least favorite too. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I, I am not that. a fan of Uzo. Um, my wife had a drink last night at dinner, and I think it was old-fashioned or something. And for, for whatever it was, they had some sort of Uzo spirit in there, and it was just, ooh Yeah, exactly. It's I like see the face robbers. Scene you can't see it, but right? it was definitely like, not the right thing. Yeah, uh, I'm I, I'm I'm impressed that that well, impressed, shocked, and I guess not shocked at the same time that we don't like the same um, spirit. Mine is Malibu rum. That's pretty much like my, my go-to. I don't really drink that much to begin with, but I will enjoy a, a nice sweet coconut rum of some sort. Um, other than that, I'm pretty basic, man. I'm like I'm not I'm not much of a drinker. I'll drink port, but not talking. We're not talking fortified wines at this point. Well,
2: you're you're in the land of breweries where you are now, so guess you need to venture out that way.
0: I am. Uh, We've got whistle hop, like literally like a hop for me. So uh, tons of breweries here in Western North Carolina and the actual area is a good food and drinking town. So uh, yeah, uh, we are, we are certainly uh, enjoying making the rounds and discovering uh, all that the area has to offer my wife and I. Um, All right, let's go ahead and wrap it up for this week. We're, we're getting a little bit long in a tooth here from a show perspective. Any final thoughts, Robert, what should people be taking away from this conversation As it relates to identity and the state and local, or the fact that Uzo was garbage, you know, what do you want to go with?
2: First of all, uh, do not get any tequila that has added agave to it. You want to go 100% natural. That is the most important takeaway. So for those uh, Casamigos fans out there, uh, shots fired, but that is definitely not the best tequila brand on the market. From probably what people actually came here to talk about, which is identity. I think the the big thing that I like to tell folks is that as it relates to your your state and local governments is that there is significant time and investment that's being put into understanding what are those services that really make sense to digitize. No one likes to go to the DMV. No one likes to go and wait in long lines. And with that, um, I see that states are making a more significant investment than many even private institutions are in establishing citizen identity. And I think there is a hope and a vision that over the course of the next five to 10 years, that state identity really can become a really unique source of federated identity across public and private sector. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out.
0: Here, here, I I have to get a new driver's license in North Carolina here soon. And it's like a three month wait to get like an appointment as a DMV to get it done. So hopefully uh, things like that get better as we move things forward from a uh, identity maturity at the state and local level. Jim, how about yourself? Final thoughts for this week?
1: Yeah, final thoughts are thank you to Andrew for sending us the question. Thank you to Chris for sending us the tweet last time. I encourage all of our listeners, you know, take part in the show by submitting some things like that. And if Anyone's going to be out at the Gartner IAM Summit. Uh, We'd love to meet fist bump, as Jeff likes to say. Um, But yeah, and if this is your first time
0: listening, please reach out to us, connect to us on LinkedIn and subscribe. That helps us out a lot. We've seen a tremendous growth with the show over the last uh, few years, considering this is all word of mouth. We don't do any advertising or anything. So we certainly appreciate every thumbs up, like, subscribe, share, whatever the you know the thing is that that helps get the word out is always appreciated. And definitely, if you're going to be a Gartner, um, hit us up. We'd love to fist bump, do whatever it takes to, to, to make sure that we meet up with folks. Um, all right. With that, we're going to go ahead and leave it for this week. Uh, we are on the web, identityatthecenter.com, or on Twitter at IDACpodcasts. Um, You can connect with us on LinkedIn. Robert, are you cool if we put your LinkedIn profile as part of our show notes? If people want to reach out and have kind of questions or thoughts, concerns, or the the Agave police want to come and uh, uh, arrest you? Absolutely. Any and all of the above. (laughs) Very good. All right. So we'll include that in the show notes. Uh, With that, we'll go ahead and leave it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk with everyone in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.